Welcome to Spirits Podcast, episode 56, King Arthur with Christian Madeira. You know, Amanda, this is such a, you know, well-loved and, you know, just remains in the canon of human stories so much. So naturally, we're going to shit on it a little bit. Yeah, no, it, it's so well known that even I knew a little bit about it. And uh, we have just a completely new take. There is all kinds of crazy stuff. I quote a movie correctly. There's a lot of talk about shipping. There's some real good hot takes in this. Very hot. The hottest of takes. The hottest of takes. Like the, the hottest of takes and the roundest of tables. That's what we have to offer you here on Spirits Podcast. Which is ironic because the hot takes were very hot back in February when we recorded this. <laughs> I know, I know. Christian has been so patient. Um, and, and he's a great friend of ours and the kind of proprietor of the podcast Once and Future Nerd. Which is definitely worth checking out. Fantastic. Um, but before we get to that, I would love to thank our newest patrons, R and Megan, for joining us, as well as our supporting producer-level patrons. Neil, Chandra, Philip, Julie, Sarah, Josh, Eeyore, Mercedes, Sandra, Robert, Lindsay, Phil, Catherine, Ryan, and Deborah. Each of you is in an OT3 friendship with Amanda and I. Uh, oh my gosh, that's adorable. As are our legend level patrons, Leanne, Erin, Ashley, Shannon, Cammie, and Cassie. You're all the knights of our round table. Aw, so sweet. And uh, we were drinking this episode, something that I really want to reprise now that it's cold yeah. again. We've lasted so long before putting out this recording. I think Christian <laughs> actually suggested this recipe. Yes, he brought um, some beautiful mead with us or yeah. to us uh, for the recording. And it was very cold. So we made hot toddies with whiskey and lemon. It was so good. You guys had whiskey. I don't drink whiskey. Yes. So Julia just had mead uh, and more for me. It was delicious. <laughs> we are sponsored this week by Audible. We have talked about it before, but Audible brings you an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can get your 30-day free trial at audible.com spirits. Also, you guys might have heard us mention something about uh, Patreon changing their fee tiers and stuff like that uh, during our last episode. They are not doing that anymore. There was quite a backlash, especially from the podcasting community, and they have resolved to keep it as it is. Yes. So if you were a patron and you dropped off because you were worried about the new fees or just you weren't happy with the way that Patreon was handling things, welcome back. Nothing's changing. Join the ranks again. And we really, truly appreciate your support there. Every dollar that you pledge brings us closer to Akron, Ohio, which is a sentence that I never thought I would say. Spaghetti get in. Spaghetti get in, y'all. It can happen as soon as, I don't know, late January, I suppose, yes. with your support on Patreon. Oh, so shit. help us get there. Help us get to our goal. Julia just realized in her eyes that we, she would actually have to go to Ohio when oh, this happens. No. <laughs> so Sorry, bring us bring us closer to the spaghetti get in and, uh, and pledge at Patreon.com. Dot com slash Spirits Podcast. And if you're already a patron or you're considering becoming a patron, every episode we rant about something ridiculous and editor Eric has to cut it for time. But if you are a patron at any level, a dollar or more, you get to hear us talk about in this episode, the weird dark timelines of Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, every single episode, there is some kind of rant that Eric texts us like, why are you saying this <laughs> as he's editing uh, and excerpts, you know, a few minutes worth of rant up to, I think, probably nine. It was our longest one on mm -hmm. record, probably by Gilderoy Lockhart. Uh, the uh, last one was uh, 420 Blaze It. Blaze It. Uh, so we are going to be sharing those with our patrons because, listen, if anyone's going to appreciate my stupid jokes, it's going to be you guys. That is true. So without further ado, please enjoy Spirits Podcast Episode 56, King Arthur with Christian Madeira. We are so pleased this week to welcome Christian Kelly Madeira the co-creator and director of the Once and Future Nerd podcast that we love. 
Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm, like, really excited to geek out with you. We're excited. We're always excited to geek out. Let's be real here. Yeah, and I'm particularly pumped that you have brought several pages of tight notes. Yeah, I've, I did. I I, I was kind of extra with that. No. Still got that over. You, you can't be too extra. You can't, <laughs> can't be too, be too extra spirits. with your nerdum. No, you can't. <laughs> Unless you, um, actually, and then we're not okay with that. Mm. Yeah. This, <laughs> no. You know, the, honestly, this entire spiel is like a long um actually about to every what, single one of our other episodes no just okay. to what everyone thinks about king arthur listen See, we're totally okay with that, that we're here for so we're going to talk about uh king arthur and awesome. specifically kind of how the arthur myth has evolved um in the, over the last like 1500 years um so i kind of wanted to start by asking you guys what you think just kind of like family feud style yeah when you hear king arthur what do you typically think monty python a quest for the holy grail sure yes right. that definitely might that was one of the few pop culture references that made it into my childhood that's why i had to steal it from you before you could say it <laughs> thank you i can recite pretty much the whole thing by memory i actually have the the recording of the movie uh-huh. as an mp3 on my phone Great. not surprised by that. we had the record as a kid anyway it doesn't matter uh and he's played by a blonde kid on tv currently right the, the show merlin? merlin okay that's over, but yeah, okay. that is All a right. thing. Not so current. <laughs> Congratulations. Not so current. Uh, and he had a round table with knights at it. Good job. That's all I got. There's, there's a song some, about it. Is there a sword in the stone? Is that, y- that him? Yes. Okay. And there's a lady in a lake. Yeah. And there's... <laughs> Strange women lying in ponds distributing soldiers on basis of a system of government. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that was actually fantastic. Good job. We're going to come back to Monty Python like a couple times. How is it ready for it. This is never been farcical to crash experiment. <laughs> Damn. All right, I'll stop there. Yeah, I can, I can, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any other stuff. Um, He gets cheated on by his wife. Um, Do you remember with whom? Guinevere, but it's with Lancelot. And then Gal heads hot, I think, maybe? Yep, yep. Okay. Blowing locks of some kind. Cool, 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 cool. Dunno. That's yeah. it. That's it. I mean, that's. I think that's generally the the bullet points. I've I've written down my kind of like. Oh, there's Morgan Le Fay. There's that's a thing too. Yes, Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> there we go. So I got really excited. So like the the point I'm going to drive at this whole time is that there isn't really an Arthur canon, so to speak. There's sure. no one defining Arthur text. You know, but, we love multiplicity of myths. Yeah, it, but if we were going to do like an electron cloud graph of the the key points of Arthur. Uh, I'm going to run through those really quick at the top and now go through how we got there. So nice. um, at the beginning, he, he acquires a sword through some kind of worthiness test. Often the sword is called Excalibur and often he pulls it out of a stone. Framing question. Yes. Was he a king beforehand or does, or does finding the sword make him king? He, that's the, the, the worthiness test of that is the sword signifies him as king. Which is makes usually, uh, I see. Yeah, is okay. usually how it goes. Like Thor's hammer. Right. Although there are, ver- like, again, multiplicity of, like, sometimes he was just a random kid who did this and now he's king, or right. he was already the king and he didn't know it or nobody else knew it and that was how he cool. proved it. Cool. And finally, what time period are we talking? Okay. So we're talking about nearly any time in, <laughs> like, the <laughs> pre-Renaissance history of England. Arthur first shows up in, like, the five or six hundreds, mm-hmm. and that's when he's reported to have lived throughout all the myths, but it gets very, very, very anachronistic as the myth goes on. As it does. Yeah. As it does in almost all myth. Right. Myths get messy. Yeah. yeah. I want that as a t-shirt now. Uh, as I said it, I was picturing the way that's it would good. look on a tote bag. It's like A-plus <laughs> merch. Um, yeah, so... Often he pulls the sword out of a stone. Sometimes he's given the sword by the Lady of the Lake. Sometimes both of those things happen and they're different swords. 
But in any case, there's a worthiness test of some sort that signifies him as the king of Britain. Um, he fights the Saxons and does other grand acts of war. At some point, he assembles his Knights of the Round Table. They are called by God to seek the Holy Grail. In some versions, one of the knights succeeds. It's almost never Arthur. Uh, uh, His favorite knight, Lancelot, has an ongoing affair with his queen, Guinevere. Nice. At some point... Why can't uh, it be an OT3, y'all? Why can't it be an OT3? Well, you know, we're going to get to that, actually. Oh, Um, nice. I feel like Lancelot is a hella gay name, so let's go for it. It is, it yeah. is. At, at very least, hella bi. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get there, because you're not the first to have that thought. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> Knowing the internet, I am not surprised Historians by that. Historians are freaky. Uh-huh. <laughs> Historians are freaky. So, and then at some point, uh, Mordred shows up. Um, Mordred's name means evil counsel in Anglo-Saxon. Often, uh, Mordred is Arthur's illegitimate son via incest with his half-sister, a sorceress, who is usually either Morgan Le Fay or Morgase. Sometimes they're the same character, sometimes they're different characters. And so, as a result, Mordred hates his father, Arthur, and at some point, while Arthur is out of Britain on one quest or another, Mordred usurps the throne mm. and uh, marries Guinevere, either consensually or not, depending on the version of the myth. And so Arthur has to come back to fight Mordred. Um, he usually kills Mordred, but is himself uh, mortally wounded. Mm. So he then gets taken to the uh, mythical island of Avalon to one. heal his wounds. So many words that I know are coming together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So he gets taken to Avalon for his wounds to be treated, mm-hmm. um, never to be seen again. However, there's often a, a messianic component of this myth where Arthur will one day return to save Britain in some great hour of need. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a myth that nationalists can use. Yes. <laughs> it also seems like he may have shit the bed during World War II because you think he might have showed up yeah. then. Maybe, Maybe that wasn't their greatest time of need. Maybe, Maybe Brexit is their greatest yes. time of need and Arthur's just going to show the fuck up and be like, right. what are y'all doing? Right. Or, Maybe, or maybe he came briefly to possess the body of the king in Kingsman. What was his name? George? Uh, George the one, IV or something? Uh, Kingsman? Are we, oh, not King. Uh, the, the King's, King's speech? speech. The King's speech. There we go. That's the other uh, Colin Firth movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's more gun shooting in that one. Yeah. Though. And a lot more shipping. Yes. Anyway, movies, but anyway, maybe it's he, hell maybe yeah. he came briefly yeah, to, yeah. to possess that the body of that king, king who and had then to take he like over. noped right out of there. Yeah. And oops, sorry, World War Two. Yeah, that's that's plausible. Although we'll come back to T. H. White, who did want Arthur, who in a way did want Arthur to show up for. World War II. All right. That sounds right. Anyway. um, But, so that's kind of the broad strokes of the Arthur, air quotes, canon. Um, But in reality, very, very, very few of those elements were there in the earliest days of the Arthur myth. And it was, they were all, most of them were added as the myth evolved over time. Um, And so my, the point I'm going to drive at, I'm trying to state this in the um, most provocative way that I can, is that um, much of what we think of as the Arthur canon is actually self-insert romantic fanfic. Yes! My favorite kind! Spirit's hot take. (laughs) Yes. That's that's my Arthur hot take. We're Um, all about those angry hot takes where... Everything is bullshit, and we're right. Yeah, and like yeah. character <laughs> slash meter fanfic, second person fanfic. Not yeah. a fan, but like respect. Right. Second person fanfic is perhaps the most ridiculous kind of fanfic. <laughs> we don't yuck any yums, but listen, I've seen it done well like twice. 
but I but do indeed compared to how many different second person fanfic there is in the world. I I do have an email filter to block slash reader in quotes from my email alerts on the fandoms that I follow. I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> I want to give a quick shout out to the uh, actual Arthurian scholar who goes by Professor Erudite on Tumblr, who I... Subscribes immediately. <laughs> I, I, I pitched them my my thesis, and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's that's defensible. Ooh. Um, we got some academic, like, citation yeah, and endorsement here. Yeah, well, I didn't send them the whole thing, but they said that generally the thesis was defensible. The two-line thesis that yeah, you said. Yeah, the, the self-insert. I hope, Professor, if you end up listening to this episode, A, thank you, B, um, I, I just hope that we didn't get it too wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's all on me if you did, so that's that's fine. Um, uh, okay, so in order to walk us through that, I got to back up and give a partial and sketchy history of the British Isles. Cool. Uh, beautiful. My favorite kind of yeah. beautiful history. <laughs> it's going to be uh, real, real broad strokes here. So... If we go back, like, as far as we can reasonably trace, uh, Britain was inhabited by various um, Celtic tribes, um, for which, if, you know, if people don't know, when we say they're Celtic, it's a like a family of cultures and languages. Mm-hmm. They would have seen themselves as distinct tribes from one another who traded and, uh, you know, competed or fought over lands and resources, um, but their languages were all linguistically related and their religion, mythology, cultural practices would have been recognizable yep. to each other. Like they would have said, oh, yeah, I know that story, you know. Um, and so in Britain, it was you know, the Britons and the Scots and the Picts, probably a few others that I'm missing. Sorry uh, to all of those people from 5,000 <laughs> years ago who I'm leaving <laughs> out. Um, and we should note that for like most of the Bronze Age and going into like the second and first centuries BCE, um, Celtic tribes dominated most of Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. That was just their, that was their jam. Um, so then we move into the period of Roman Britain, uh, which starting in like the first century CE. Um, the which, Rome- that is still fucking crazy to me that people made it from Rome to the UK. Yeah. What? Yeah. That's so far. It's very far. It's they built aqueducts I, and then left. Yeah, I think... I That's think, all I know about Roman <laughs> I, I think a lot about how Build the aqueducts far, and leave. Right, yes. <laughs> I think a lot about how far things were when I learned yeah. that, like... like That's for, like never see your family again far. Right. Or also, like, yeah, I'm going to take, like, in the Viking Age, like, yeah, I'm going to take a sailboat across the English... Or across the, the North Atlantic. Yeah. Like, yeah. you have to be... You have to not value your life or be very, very desperate... Or very, 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 very brave, bordering on psychosis to do that. Yeah, or like most Viking people would be like, yeah. oh, it's the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like Probably Pacific Islander one. and Polynesian yes. like I, peoples. Incredible. We're in the first century CE. Cool. And the Roman Empire begins its conquest of Britain. And this involves a lot of events that you've probably tangentially heard of. So they established... You're giving us a lot of credit. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you're giving Amanda a lot of credit you'll, you'll in this situation. That. You'll, you'll recognize... All right. I'm going to list three things, and you'll probably have heard of, like, a few of them. Yeah. I All I know is that 10, 10... What is it? 1055? 66. 1066 Norman. was a very important year. Yeah. Norman Conquest. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Professor Brown. <laughs> <laughs> so they establish a major trading port on the eastern coast called Londinium, which you might guess becomes modern-day London. Got, Got that, that one. one. Got yeah. that one. 
Heard of, we've heard of London. May have heard of Queen Bodica, who is Negative. a... Uh, she's like this badass Celtic warrior queen who cool. I... You know I've heard of her then. And the, the story usually goes that after her husband is killed and her daughter's raped by Romans, she leads a revolt and burns down Londinium. Yes. Um, Love it. Yeah, uh, which is a pretty dope thing to do. Um, and you also may have heard of uh, Emperor Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian. Hadrian's Wall. Yes. Yeah, he built a wall yeah. along the northern border of Roman territory. Um, and we should say that in case any uh, deranged modern-day heads of state happen to be listening, um, walls are and have always been trash at stopping the movement of people. That is true. But they are very good at stopping livestock. So they're effective in a completely agrarian society. Nice. Not so fucking much in 2017. Um, we can get on. avocados over walls, yes, man. It's, right. It's a very God. different time than Roman Britain. The Roman conquest of Britain was eventful, but by about like the mid-2nd century CE, it's kind of like an easy, an uneasy detente had kind of settled in. Right. Um, and we they should, govern from afar. They yeah. do their thing on the isles. Exactly. They taxes. Everyone's cool. Right. That's exactly it. Like, unlike later European models of empire, the Roman Empire didn't feel the need to like, completely eradicate the cultures of the places mm-hmm. they conquered because the economics of the time didn't incentivize it like they did in, yeah. the, in the Age of Sail. So not that it was fun to be conquered by Rome, but like basically if you paid your taxes and called Caesar Caesar, you were able to do your own thing. Um, so there was like room for genuine cultural sharing uh, mm-hmm. relative to other European empires. So while the Romans are in Britain, this kind of distinct, they call it Romano-British culture, emerges among the ruling classes, where they basically keep, you know, most of their Celtic languages and religion, but they get aqueducts and bathhouses and better farming technology. So, yes. The, the good build, stuff. Yeah. Oh, like a win-win. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, except for, like, I don't know, any of the peasants who were killed during the, the military campaign. Classes, to be clear. Not so right. great, yeah. Right. Um, but so by the late 300s, um, the Roman Empire is weakening for lots of factors that you probably learned about at some point in European history class. It's complicated. I still don't remember everything that was going on. I miss AP Euro. I do. <laughs> I do. So Rome's weakening. And in 410 CE, uh, direct rule of Roman Britain ends, which basically means they just pull their army out. And they're like, hey, you guys good here? All right, bye. <laughs> Later. Got it. Got right. it. And so it begins the Saxon conquest of they originated in kind of basically while the Romans were in Britain, yeah. the like Celtic tribes in Europe were on the decline right. and Germanic tribes right. were on the rise. And like, you you know, the, they, they, they drank mead, they worshipped Odin and Thor, and they were pretty militaristic. Cool. Saxony. All about that. Got it. Yeah. So it's mostly tribes called the Angles and the Saxons, hence Anglo-Saxon. There we go. Boom. Uh, there's also uh, some Jutes and Frisians in the mix. Uh, Jute just, like, sounds like a racist term you would use for people who live on Jupiter. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> wow. I, like, wow. wanted to turn that around a little bit. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue a little bit less. (laughs) A little too easily. Anglo Saxons. Uh, Also, the name of one of my favorite mountain goat songs, the Anglo Saxons. It's great. I don't know that song. Ooh, I'll play for you later. Okay. So, yeah, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Frisians. Uh, To this day, there's still a uh, language spoken in the Netherlands called Frisian, which is the closest modern language to uh, English. 
and they're pronounced wildly differently, but you can like read a sentence wow. in Frisian and pretty much get it. All right, so these guys come over and they start claiming territory uh, on the British Isles. Like you do. So And so this is about like the four to five hundreds CE, and there's a lot of fighting, um, but over the next couple centuries... The Saxons, I'll refer to them as the Saxons because that's what the Celts refer to them as. Right. Um, it's, it's these four tribes, but for ease, we'll call them the Saxons. And that's what they're called in the Arthur myths. So they come to dominate what we now think of as England, um, and which at some point in like the six or seven hundreds would have started to be called Angoland because of the Angles, and that's yep. where we get England. Boom. Um, so nearly all of the landmass of the like southern and eastern British Isles are now ruled by a Germanic landholding class. And Germanic language I thought you were going to say landholding company. Yes. Which is just my, my finance brain coming out. Right. To be like, oh, like, what was the LLC under which they structured this? You know? <laughs> right. Cool, 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 cool. Right, like Odin LLC. Like based right. in the Maldives. Yes, yeah. exactly. So Germanic languages nearly completely displaced Celtic ones. And to this day, you can maybe correct me on this, having studied Irish. Very. <laughs> I, 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 I must implore you to, to recognize very briefly. Okay. To my knowledge, pretty much the only Celtic things that we still have in modern English are the words whiskey, britches, and like a few grammatical quirks. Pretty, pretty close. There are some food words that are that are somewhat close, but like... For example, water is the is the same across lots of Latin language. Water in Irish is ishka, and it's like U I S C E, like like it's ridiculously different. Yeah, but I am all about whiskey being the same in all languages. <laughs> I'm just I'm so about that. It's it's the constant. It makes my whiskey pong story universal across all languages. Uh, should you ever hang out with us in person, y'all, buy us a drink after any live show, and Julia will tell you her whiskey pong story. It's it is a it. epic story, very um, long, of, of victory and itself. loss and redemption. Yeah, it has a whole narrative arc. Great. It ends with me passed down a couch with Lomain next to me. Good. As all good stories should. <laughs> should be. But so that's why we're drinking mead and, and whiskey. Yeah, we are. Well, there's a reason why you guys are drinking mead and whiskey, and I'm just drinking mead. Fair. Chili <laughs> does not drink brown liquors. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> and then as this conquest is happening, um, the Celtic rulers who aren't killed or absorbed by Germanic cultures, they retreat to more remote locations on the British Isles. Uh, a lot of them go west to Cornwall and Wales and Ireland. Uh, some go north to Scotland, and that is why, in large part, um, those regions have always had more of a tie to Celtic culture, and why... And languages. Yes, and like piggybacking a bit on the decolonial movements of the mid-20th century, we're seeing a revival of Celtic languages yep. in Wales and Ireland and, and Cornwall, etc. Um, interestingly, some of the Celtic ruling class um, flee south, and they sail to France, and that is why there is a region of northwestern France that is still called Brittany. And there they ah. still, yep, and they still speak a Celtic language there called Breton. Amazing. Yes. I actually know that. Not that that was connected really, but I knew that there was Brittany and it had some sort of British connection. Amazing. I'm going to hit you with another fun fact. Yes, bring it. Um, it's a little bit antiquated, but that region is sometimes referred to by old-timey Brits as Lesser Britain. <laughs> and that <laughs> the is most wh- British thing yeah, ever. But that is why, so, like, the name Great Britain is not just, like, colonial self-aggrandizing. Great Britain is also in contrast to Lesser Britain. Yeah, the tiny farther Britain. north and bigger. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And during, like, the late Middle Ages, there were, like, a lot of British kings, like, claimed holdings in Brittany and other parts. Yeah, of that's right. 
Yeah. Hmm. So there was an idea that, like, this is a part of, like, an incomplete part of Britain. Amazing. Our sponsor this week is Audible. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, audio shows, news, comedy, all kinds of stuff. And they're offering Spirits listeners a free 30-day trial and a free book if you sign up at audible.com spirits. Now, Amanda, I'm sure you have a book recommendation, but I also have a book recommendation. Oh, is yours better? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it's better, <laughs> but The Last Jedi did come out this week. It did. And... Audible has an amazing audiobook that's celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Wars that came out in October called From a Certain Point of View. And it is amazing. Have you read it? it I, I've read the uh, short story and like listening to the audiobook is a thousand times better because they have a full cast reading all these short stories. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is in it. John Hamm is in it for some oh my reason. Gosh. It is worth checking out. Yeah, and our, uh, I'm not going to say our friend, because, uh, you know, one would aspire to that, but uh, Griffin McElroy, noted podcasting uh, king and 30 under 30 media luminary. Um, yes, along our with our good friend, Griffin McElroy. Along with our actual friend, Lauren Shippen. Anyway, uh, but he contributed a story to the book, so I'm really excited to hear that story come to life. Hey, also, former guest on Spirits Podcast, Greg Rucka, also wrote a short story for hey! that. Hey, Greg Rucka. Greg Rucka. What's we up, love buddy? him from our Wonder Woman episode. Um, I love that idea, and I think I'm going to use my free trial to listen to that book. But the one that I have to recommend is Vacation Land by John Hodgman. Is it also read by John Hodgman? It is read by John Hodgman. Excellent. Which just... I mean, I enjoyed hearing his voice in my head as I read the physical copy of the book, but then I switched kind of halfway through to listen to the audiobook. And it is really, really nice to hear him speak in like emotion. Mm-hmm. He's very kind of deadpan as a, as a comic. Um, but to hear him talk about the really like gorgeous prose and sardonic, um, you know, really good humor that he has to offer in vacation land, which is a kind of memoir essay book about Maine, um, where his wife's family has vacation for a long time. And now he does as well. And it's just a wonderful book. It has a lot to do with like parenting and fatherhood, obviously mm-hmm. neither, which I really understand. Uh, but it, it made me feel as if I did. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. Yeah. I, I also read the book. I haven't listened to the audiobook yet. Maybe that'll be what I use my free trial for. Oh, adorable. But it's, it's like, it's like when couples put their arms around each other at the wedding to eat the cake okay books okay that's cool (laughs) so uh check out audible you can go to audible.com slash spirits to get a 30-day free trial and a free book enjoy and thank you so much to audible for sponsoring the show now let's get back to king arthur cool so then with that little mini celtic diaspora that happened in mind we can put the uh arthur myth in context Awesome. Okay. Let's do it up. Cool. So, unfortunately, the oldest surviving written text that we have about Arthur is uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae. My Latin is terrible. This is going to be really weird, but I've heard of this before. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's like a big deal. I read selections in my uh, my British history class. Yeah, it's like the first attempt. So, in Latin, it means history of the kings of Britain, and it's it's an attempt to, like, tell the story of all the kings of Britain up until the time that Geoffrey of Monmouth um, was writing going back centuries. It's, we consider it today a pseudo-historical account (laughs) because it's like very clear that some of the stories are fanciful and it's like, it's in that phase of writing history where mythology and folklore were mixed with verifiable fact very interchangeably and and without distinction. Sounds familiar. Yeah. A uh, little, little side story, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth was a Welsh monk 
Um, but I think for fun, let's just imagine um, he's a guy named Jeff from Monmouth County, New Jersey. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, also a monk, but like yeah, on also holiday. A monk. Yeah. So should we, is, is he from, from Monmouth what? Yeah, exactly. Is he from, so is he from like Freehold or Esbury Park or Red Hook? Where should we decide Jeff is from? We're from Long Island, so we know nothing about New Jersey. Okay. It's like contractual. I'm also from Long Island, uh, but I've had, because I'm, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, so I've had to learn the geography. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm going to say he's from Freehold. Let's go. Um, cool. Cool. Okay, so the history of the Kings of Britain is completed around 1138, which means we're way past the Saxon conquest. And we super are. Yeah, and we're already a couple decades into the Norman conquest, which is... 1066. 1066. Um, That's all you got to know. Right. Uh, But it it cites earlier written histories that we have lost, and it also cites oral traditions going back to the five and six hundreds. So Jeff from Freehold did a good job. He did. He was pretty thorough as far as you could be. He listened to his modest stories. What? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But he didn't didn't save her like baby books that had all the dates and years in them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So... Uh, he definitely added some of his own imaginings into the stories because there's stuff that never appears yep. in an earlier text. So we can safely say that if it's not in Jeffrey of Monmouth's account, that it probably wasn't a prominent feature of the Arthur myth before like 1100. Nice. Nice to have that like watershed text. Yeah. So what's actually included in Jeffrey of Monmouth's story of King Arthur? Because Arthur is one of the kings that shows up in his History of the Kings of Britain. You would hope so. In Jersey Jeff's account. Uh, <laughs> I can't get over that image now. I love it. I love so it. Good. Just like spiky hair. Yeah. Yeah. So, dumb. Uh, so awesome. So he succeeds his devil's father. Devil's jersey. What's that? A devil's jersey. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so he succeeds his father, Uther Pendragon, as the King of Britain. Uh, Jeff mentions his sword Excalibur and his magician advisor Merlin. So they show up in this nice. account. Nice. Hell yeah. Nice. Um, And in this account, Arthur is a Romano-British king, and he's a pretty straightforward, like, warrior hero. He fights bears and witches and other threats to Britain. You know, bears and witches. Yeah, those are the main, those are the main threats. He fought bears and witches and shit, what? Yeah, right. (laughs) Do you even, do you even fight bears, bro? (laughs) He also leads raids against fairy castles to liberate human prisoners there. That's like a very... That they ate some food and now they're stuck in the fairy Exactly, exactly. It's a very... Classic. Like you do. Never, never eat the food people. In the fairy realm, you don't. Right, but like it's a very Celtic warrior hero thing to do. And yes, um, he fights the Saxons um, so successfully that they are not a threat again until after his death. Mm. Um, So this is a major part of the the Welsh, that is Celtic tradition surrounding Arthur, was that he was this great hero who stood against the Saxon invasion to preserve the Celtic identity of the British Isles. Um, That was like his main jam, we can say, prior to, like, Jeff of Monmouth and, yeah. and earlier. So that, which is not really recognizable. Like Arthur as a warrior king is not really yeah. what you think of. So this is sort of the original version off which all the future permutations like leapt. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Um, and then so after he repels the Saxons and unifies England, that's important as it like cements Arthur as part of the British national creation myth that right. he unified the Isles. Uh, then he goes to build his own empire by establishing claims in 
Ireland, Iceland, Norway, and Denmark. That probably didn't happen because we probably would have heard about it in the Norse sagas at some point yeah. if that happened. The Norse were like sitting in full libraries looking at England as they like told stories over campfires being like, what are you, do you, do you guys even history? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Arthur fictionally got around. Yes. He did. He did. Yes. Uh, and he eventually challenges the Emperor of Rome. Like, he moves so far south that, like, Rome starts naturally. to get threatened. That's, yeah. that's naturally. bold, my friend. Exactly. Naturally. He's, like, he's a badass in this earliest version of the myth. Hell yeah. Uh, but while he's fighting Rome, he learns that Mordred, uh, who in this text is just his nephew. Like, there's no, like... There's no weird incest in There's this no, one. like, sorcerer incest or anything <laughs> like that. He's yeah. just his nephew, who's kind of a dick. Um, his nephew has married Guinevere and claimed his throne, so he goes back, kills Mordred, is mortally wounded, and taken to Avalon. So that part is all there. All uh, right. So our buddy Jeff is, like, very influential uh, in England and also in spreading Arthur, like, back across the continent. Um, but he's not the only source in the continent because, um, remember that the Celtic tribes fleeing the Saxons settled in Brittany slash Lesser Britain in like the five or six hundreds. And they brought with them this story of this great warrior king who would one day return and restore, you know, Britain to them. Like they were a a diaspora culture and they thought they were going to get their homeland back when Arthur returned. Some Targaryen shit going on right now. Cool, cool, cool. Exactly. So French monks, they're both, they're reading Geoffrey of Monmouth. They're making some dope-ass cheese. Yes, they're making (laughs) some dope cheese. And they're hearing from the the Breton people also about this. They've been hearing about Arthur for a while, just not in as... Like, we get it. We get it. You're going to leave soon. Yep. Right. And it's really, it's in France in, like, the 12 to 1300s that the Arthur story becomes recognizable to what we have today. That's so amazing, especially because, like, those are the people who needed that myth the most. Right. Yeah. So here are the major changes that, like, the French monks introduce. Okay. They begin to focus on the Knights of the Round Table. Cool. Um, who weren't really a big part of Arthur before. No, but the world building. Yes, the, the world building. The original author didn't get it, so the uh, fans are world building. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they had the Knights of the Round Table, especially Lancelot mm-hmm. and his doomed romance with Guinevere, Arthur's yeah. queen. We should notice that if we stare at the name Lancelot for a few seconds... Means he fucks a lot. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I wasn't going there, but uh, yes, maybe. Uh, No, probably not, but yeah, sure. Good. (laughs) Um, Right, so, but no, if we stare at Lancelot's name long enough, we realize it looks like a pretty French name. It does. It does. And Lancelot is canonically French. Like, he usually comes from Mm -hmm. Lesser Britain, who when Arthur, like, puts out a call to all the, the knights in Lesser Britain to help him repel the Saxons, Lancelot shows up. He takes a boat and shows up. Yep. Um, and also the Grail quest gets centered. Yep. Because uh, these are very, very, very Catholic monks um, adding on to a very, very, very not Catholic story. Gotta just throw the Grail in there. Just just put a little God in the cracks. Exactly. <laughs> um, and Arthur is almost never the one to get the Grail, <laughs> if anyone gets the Grail. <laughs> Uh, It's usually one of his knights. Sometimes it's Galahad. Sometimes it's Lancelot. But so to tell these stories, which is what the the French were really interested in telling, Arthur has to get sidelined because they are focused on the stuff that's not Arthur. And in order to, like, spend time on the the Lancelot-Guinevere affair and for that to make sense, Arthur either has to be absent, oblivious, or a weak and ineffectual 
cuckold. Like, Which, that's not going to happen nope. in a myth about a warrior king world builder. But it does. Unless you are a French monk talking about it. Who exactly. Who doesn't give a shit about this oh. cool Celtic dude. And that's it's not your dude. Like, it's why, not your why dude. Why does it matter? Oh. So, exactly. So, to recap, once French monks get their hands on Arthur, the story becomes about a French guy who just so happens to be, like, so suave and good <laughs> and good at being a knight. Like, he's just so good at being a knight, you guys. That's so weird. I would have never put those two things together. Wild, right? He's so good at being a knight that the queen just falls in love with him. You know, oh, like you do. It. Right. And also, um, him and his friends are so awesome and virtuous that one of them becomes besties with, like, actual Jesus Christ. So... <laughs> yeah, oh, sure. Yep. That's, that's, that's right. accurate. Right. So... That, my friends, is a self-insert love triangle romantic fanfic, if I have ever heard one. And honestly, like, I've been trying to figure out exactly what the modern equivalent of this reframing would be. And the best I would come up with is, like, if the next Die Hard movie was written entirely in a Tumblr thread and John McClane is in, like, three scenes and the rest of the movie is Oscar Isaac seducing his wife... Like, that's pretty much... If I, that was the next Die Hard movie. I'm pretty sure someone on Tumblr has written that yeah, already. Yeah, write in, because I'm sure you have. Someone so. find this for me, because I would watch a movie where oh, yeah, Oscar yeah, yeah. Isaac, like, really, honestly, just wooing anyone. Yeah, like, to be clear, we would all watch that movie. The but thing Hollywood hasn't figured out is that fans are are multitudinous and have a shitload of money mm-hmm. and yeah. like to see things more than once. Yes. Yes. Okay, and so I should also note that during this time of, like, the French monks redoing Arthur. Sure. We also add the element where um, Mordred is the illegitimate son of Arthur through incest with his half-sister, the sorceress Morgase or Morgan Le Fay. Um, In most versions, she she uses some kind of magic to conceal her identity and or seduce him uh, because this is now a very, very Catholic story. So we need... So how he couldn't have had deviant desires in his heart when this happened. Right. And we also need to associate pagan magic with femininity in general and feminine sexuality in particular and wrap the whole thing up in one bundle of evil and treachery. Yeah. Which like awesome, awesome conclusion. We love it. Yeah. Right. Um, so now we're going to come to, we're going to hop back across the channel to England and we're going to come to, uh, Thomas Mallory. Goodbye, Um, little Britain. I can hardly see you from here. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and he publishes uh, Le Mort d'Arthur. Uh, my, God, my French is bad. Uh, the Death of Arthur. Yes. I can, I can translate that. Right on. So he publishes that in 1485. And it's his attempt to compile all of the French and English stories about Arthur into and his, and his, his squad into one like coherent narrative. Makes sense. Um, and thank you. Yes, thank you, Thomas <laughs> Mallory. Um, and uh, Sir Mallory tends to be the jumping off point or skeleton for nearly all of the later English language retellings of Arthur. So if there's anything that resembles a canon this is it. for Arthur, it's it's Mallory. But we should bear in mind that it's very, very, very French influence. Influence. Sure. Like the fact that it has a French title, even when published right. in England, and this is after French was like in style as the like the court language right. in England. So that's like that's very telling. And one could and I am arguing that by this point, um, the Arthur canon is as much uh, French as it is English. Checks out. Yes. Um, And this is like a big thing in the Arthur scholarship, air quotes, that arguably the central national myth of Britain is like actually 
really French. Which, like, that's so fitting because so much about British identity is, is, like, crafted and retold in opposition to France or yes, in the context sure. of France. All of English history is just a chronicle of its relationship with France. Fuck you, France, the day. basically. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. And so much like English national identity and points of pride, especially English, but but kind of British more broadly, are again in opposition to France or perceived notions of France or uh, to like Europe as a continent, which is refracted through France. So that makes so much sense, and I love it. Right, and it's also and it's also interesting how much of the modern English language is very 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 French. Oh yeah, Um, and so yeah, exactly, and like allegedly one of Tolkien's reasons for writing Lord of the Rings was he wanted to create a British origin myth that was actually British in origin because he knew how French Arthur was. Hmm. And I think that Monty Python were well-read enough and, like, studied enough to know about this undercurrent in the Yeah, those, those are Oxbridge bros. They, yeah. they knew what they were doing. So when Graham Chapman as Arthur asks the French knights, well, what are you doing in England? He never gets an answer. He never gets mm-hmm. a good answer. They're just like, oh, yeah, there's just these French guys in England, and we're not, there's all this <laughs> Exactly. Why? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. I think I think they were smart enough to like be doing that on purpose. Um, One last cool detail from Mallory. Um, It includes the detail that Arthur's tomb in Avalon bears the inscription, and here I go with bad Latin. um, Hic jacet Arturus rex quondam rexque futurus. Again, excuse me. Wait, I know what I know what this is. Yes, it's here lies Arthur. King once and king who will be. The once and future king. The once yep. and future king. Yes. And that's where T.H. Oh. White gets the name for his book. And we're going to come back to White. And um, where you got your yes. podcasting for. Yes. Though it is not, <laughs> I should say, it's not like explicitly right, right, Arthurian, right. though. There's all, you can't do fantasy without having some Arthurian yeah. undercurrents. Um, and once again, Avalon, is Avalon real? Probably not. I mean, it might be some tiny island that we've lost track of, but it, it seems like a mythical place, almost... Like a healing place or like a like a final retreat type place? Um, depending on some versions of the myth, it has like connections to the fairy world. Uh, it ah. is like they think that maybe linguistically it's related to a Celtic word for apple. Like there's something. I was going to say like pro- it sounds like it might like have like garden, garden type Eden. Thing. Right. Yeah. It's got this. It's got this feeling of like an unspoiled connection. And cool. like. Uh, yeah. Everything to, is Eden. Yeah. Yeah. And to a not sinister version of the fairy world that is, yeah, a place of, of healing. Cool. Thank you. Um, my uh, my aunt's country club was named Avalon. <laughs> it's a very, like, popular, yeah, yeah. like, estate slash... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the idea, right? You go there and you heal and then maybe you come back and save Britain. Okay, so Mallory's 1485. And, but then as we, like, leave the Middle Ages and enter the Renaissance, interest in medieval romances starts to kind of fade. Um but then it comes back in the 19th century, where there's like a romantic movement in the arts, and also um, with the rise of nationalism, people are interested in their national origin myths. Also, novels. Yes, they were some dirty, dirty Victorian boys and girls, play yes. girls. Yes, <laughs> and everybody was terrified by novels and bicycles that everyone was going to be lesbians because <laughs> of novels and bicycles. I'm all about the. Bicycle I mean, lesbians. checks out. Yeah. checks out. And so obviously, the nationalism gets uh, very ugly in a lot of places. Uh, Wagner was a real, real nasty, nasty guy uh, and loved his uh, Germanic mythology. But anyway, uh, in 1816, we see the uh, first new edition of Mallory since 1634. So that's so that's telling. Um, And then after World War One, there's a bit of a dip again as Europeans briefly sour 
on the idea of like martial chivalry mm-hmm. and nationalism because like well that ended in a nasty place yeah not the just best. for a second though before they forgot yeah <laughs> and yes. then we came back to it real quick real hard um, with a vengeance but so T.H. White uses that souring on those ideas as his advantage uh, mm. to his to his advantage um so the Once and Future King is a tetralogy. The last volume is not published until 58, but the first three come out in 38, 39, and 40, respectively. What a, what a, what a time. So T.H. White takes Mallory as the basic skeleton for his version, but in his, uh, Arthur's primary concern is uniting Britain under a just rule of law. It which Sounds like super post-World War I. yes. And also, right, it, that White paints it as in stark contrast to the Saxon, remember, the Germanic Saxon ethos that he presents as, like, might makes right. So we're yep. 38 to 40. That sounds like Germany. <laughs> yes. We're 38 to 40. Yeah. It's very easy to see what White yeah. is getting at. So his Arthur is an explicitly anti-fascist Arthur, which is kind of cool. Um, this is why historical criticism is the shit. His Arthur is literally just Churchill, I'm imagining. In some ways, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's almost like his Merlin is more, I don't know, but yes, yeah, it's something like that. Someone is Churchill in this yeah. situation. I'm sure someone has written that essay. Yeah. Um, and he tries, in White's defense, he tries not to be a hypocrite about it. There's this really weird undertone in White where, like, the Irish just need to get over it. Oh. It's, which, like, it's odd, and you'd be tempted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, mm. Yeah, it's very odd, and like you would yeah. be tempted to just write it off as like old British guy, but he does go out of his way to have Merlin remark very anachronistically about how like the Boer War mm. was unjustified imperial mm. aggression on Fucking the part of England. Old English dudes love talking about the Boer War. They do indeed. <laughs> but he's like, oh, that was super bad. But like the Irish should just like get over it. <laughs> It's it's an odd thing, but like he tries, he tries to have like an ideologically consistent position that might makes right is wrong. I'm also flashing to like the kind of like queer, you know, like anti-gay, like oh, you should get over it, but it's just just live your life. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. we're about to come back to that in a very big way in like three seconds. Um, So this is the 20th century now, right? So we're post Freud, we're post Ibsen, we're post Chekhov. You always want to be post Freud. Yes. Yes. Thank God. Um, but so audiences are like very interested in psychological motivation now and characters that were um, like psychologically coherent individuals. And it's consider- with motivations, right? Yes. And like and, and like consistent actions. Right. And it's sorry, go ahead. No, I was I was about to say, I was just in my head finishing your sentence. You're like, audience was very into gay things. Super into <laughs> gay stuff, right? We're so close. No, I know, I'm sorry. You said three seconds and my mind was like, one, sorry. two, no, three, sorry. Go. Right. It was more like, all right, so like 120 <laughs> seconds or something. Gotcha. So it's like it's considered a plus at this time in literature if characters are acting on motivations that they aren't consciously aware of. Yes. Right? Hello, Freud. Um, and medieval literature, not. They're, like, valued very different things and doesn't yeah. hold up to the... Mo- like, I can come back someday and we can do Beowulf and how it's just, like, fucking bonkos yep. from a modern... Yeah. Hell like, yeah. people are acting on things like, what? what? Why? Yeah, and Chaucer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why did you do that? 
Um, Doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> also, the way that I that Julia helped me enjoy Star Wars for the first time mm. was just like these are not people; these are archetypes. And yes. like we are going to watch an opera and not a movie. And yes. I was like, okay, good. Yeah, I got it. It is an opera. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> Julia knows how to make me like things. Yes, that's really good. I have to use that. I sat her down. I'm like, we're going to watch a children's show, but it's about gay aliens and gender role and Amanda's like okay I will watch this now yeah so that yep. was Steven Universe by the way cool yeah. so T.H. White looks back at the Mallory skeleton through this modern psychologically motivated lens he realizes that a lot of Lancelot's behavior only makes sense if Lancelot is in romantic love with Arthur it's Do a like, little dance here. Finally, yeah. someone's looking out for Amanda. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and it is coming up Amanda. <laughs> it is never like explicitly stated in the text, but like all but. Like it yeah, is yeah. the subtext is very, very, very strong. The subtext is basically he wants to kiss him on the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very like and he admired him as as a boy and mm. was like and like there's lots of stuff about how like Lancelot never feels like he fit in his society and like, do it. and like feeling like he's made wrong and all this stand yeah, but he's like his, his admiration mm. for Arthur is so intense that he sometimes like and feels intensity floored. of feeling and closeness that he desired weird man yeah. the first time that someone that someone like told me that or that I read that online I was like Oh, that explains so much. Right. Not, Every not novel only, is gay. Now. Right, not only interpreting novels and movies, but also like my own like queer childhood, where like I didn't have vocabulary or like mm. knowledge mm. or or the opportunity. No one like asked me to consider those things. Right, and so it was only like in retrospect at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, like reading this kind of like criticism and realizing from you know the internet and fandom that oh everything can be gay. I'm like oh no, oh, that was it why. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. That's like very, very strong in yes. Once and Future King. Um, and most of White T.H. White's biographers tend to agree that White was probably gay himself. Um, he never came out and he came close to marrying several women. We should How note. How do we all, T.H.? How do we all? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we should note that uh, being gay was illegal in the UK until 1967. And. T.H. White died from heart failure in 1964 because this portion of the show is going to be a real fucking bummer, by the <laughs> this way. This is sad. Yeah. And also, coming back to Monty Python, I do think they were also well-read enough to be aware of this idea because it's a major part of Spamalot that yes. Lancelot There is, is a five-minute song about how Lancelot is hella gay. Yeah, but even in Holy Grail, there's a... One of the best, like, throwaway jokes that you will miss if your TV isn't turned up yeah. loud enough. Where, like, I think, like, we get when Galahad rescues, when Lancelot rescues Galahad yeah. from the, Castle Anthrax. With all the, with all the, uh, the priestesses, uh, yeah, the, the nuns or the, whatever. The spanking in the oral the sex. The spanking yes, in the yes. oral sex. Yeah, and, they're le- and he's like, can I have a little bit of peril? No, it's too perilous. I'm like, just as they're about to go, to proceed into the distance and cut away, Galahad's like, that you're gay. I'm not. I'm not. And then just cut away. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And that's why, like, that's why Arthur has survived for 1,500 years. Because we keep adapting that story to make it, you know, fit our timeline. Exactly. He's, you know, know, he gets to be whatever the author wants to say is special and good about Britain. Like, whatever they happen to think. And whatever they need it to be. Exactly. Yeah, to quote, yeah, to paraphrase Christopher Nolan, he's like, he's whatever... Britain needs him to be because that's the the Arthur <laughs> to be the hero that Gotham deserves exactly <laughs> yeah. it's, it's exactly right and like so before you know before anyone shits on fic writers like Arthurian canon is a self insert 
uh, love triangle fan fiction. As a, a former fic writer and as Amanda is a current fic writer, we oh, are yeah. totally into that. We are we are so here for it. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah, yeah. man. Well, thank you so much. You want to plug your stuff? Yeah. Um, and actually, like, I mean, that's kind of, I, I do my best. That's kind of what we try to do with um, The Once and Future Nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, it's a, it's a fantasy audio drama. And we take uh, three high school kids from modern day Pennsylvania and put them in a kind of Game of Thrones type uh, high fantasy world. Um, and we've always tried to be kind of like what um, Cabin in the Woods was for sure. for yeah. horror, um, mm-hmm. to, for fantasy, where it's a it's like a humorous comment on the genre within a hopefully successful instance of the genre. But but a big part of of the the criticism that um, we level is like whose um, whose stories aren't getting told mm-hmm. in quote unquote traditional fantasy, which is very much just reshuffling the mythology of northern europe yeah dudes Um, conquering stuff yeah and over the over time there's been a lot of like the ways that you know indigeneity and racial otherness have gotten baked into the genre in really um problematic ways so we talk about the way that you know indigenous storytelling is is erased by our shared cultural Mm -hmm. mythology and you know there are um, yeah and like elves are the most Aryan, you know, yes. and, and other races who are meant are just to so be, white. Yeah. And are, yeah and, and other races who are meant to be like, uh, you know, enemies of like the quote unquote heroes are, are coded in ways that are, exactly. you know, racially other. And exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got one of the of the three kids from Pennsylvania who end up in our world. Uh, one of them is um, is a young white man who's, you know, got an alcoholic father, put a lot of toxic masculinity on him. One of them is a, is a black nerd whose uh, parents were academics and mm-hmm. like, and so he's got some of that background, even if he's had to hide it for years in his rural town. And uh, one of them is a, is a woman who uh, was, was sexually abused uh, when she was younger. Um, and so all of them are bringing their lens onto this fantasy world um, where all those things are happening. It's not explicitly Arthurian. We do have a knight who's very, 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 very much in love with uh, the king he served. Sweet. And, yeah. Um, so we do try to do that kind of reimagining of myth and trying to, the best we can, put people into it who would have been excluded before. You're doing good work. And, yeah. you know, Thank you. isn't that like the the beautiful burden of being alive is like working through your shit alongside yeah. other people? Yeah. yeah. You know? I hope. That's true. You can find uh, Once and Future Nerd on iTunes or just uh, Google it. We're on um, Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr, and we have a subreddit. So uh, pretty much any of the places that you go to find or talk about podcasts will we'll be there. Go leave them a nice awesome. review. Check them out. Say some nice words. Check out their episodes. Um, and remember, listeners, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Spirits Podcast. We also have all our episodes, collaborations, and guest appearances, plus merch on our website, spiritspodcast.com. Come on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. 
Throw us as little as $1 and get access to audio extras, recipe cards, director's commentaries, and patron-only live streams. And hey, if you like the show, please share us with your friends. That is the best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.